0: Say on my computer as many times as I possibly can, um, just in case you didn't know who was behind this podcast, uh, and for some reason that would inspire you to then buy some of the products off the website. I think that's what advertising really is, then, isn't it? I think I've just understood what advertising is. Good, good. I'm glad you guys were here with me for that. Uh, this week I got to speak to a photographer I greatly admire. In fact. Admires a, admires one way of putting it. Um, envy is probably another one. Um, and it's not just like a little sort of pinch of envy. It's a, it's a giant heat tablespoon of envy. Uh, this week i was speaking to Greg Fennell. Um, I mainly wanted to speak to Greg so I could double-check that i had been pronouncing his surname correctly over the years, and it wasn't, in fact, Funnel, which would, of course, be fine, but might be um, a little... Less salubrious of a surname for a photographer of his caliber. Um, I first became aware of Craig when he was the photographer on assignment with my old boss, who was a food writer. Uh, I think they were sent over to cover a a pig slaughter in Spain. Um, And I remember looking at, there was one particular photograph of the, the butcher, I'm not sure what the terminology is, but the butcher by a window and Greg had utilised that light for that real sort of Rembrandt style lighting and it was those pastel colours in the portrait that I was really drawn to and it's something that I try to incorporate in my own work Um, at no point is this some sort of um, self-nepotistic idea of that photographer's looking good because he shoots work like me mainly because Greg's a far better photographer than I am Um, but Greg's a he's a portrait photographer um, and he's a sort of He's a cultural travel and documentary photographer, um, shooting editorial work. I thoroughly enjoyed speaking to him, um, mainly because he has my dream job, and I wanted to nitpick into that a little bit and see if he could somehow get me a foot up. Um, it won't. Uh, <laughs> and we also got to talk about Leica M6s and uh, how much I dislike them. while well, he does, of course, use one. I say of course. He I mean he looks like a light like guy. I hope he takes that right way. Anyway, this is my conversation with Greg Finell. I hope you enjoyed it.
1: Yeah, um, so I mean, work wise, it was, yeah, it was, it's made a big, big difference in terms of the amount of work I've been getting and also the amount I've been able to travel. Um, I had a couple of jobs that were just kind of cancelled, like trips I was really looking forward to. One out to Pakistan that I've been working on prepping, and a um, uh, couple of jobs out. In France and other places and then I had I had a shoot for Vanity Fair out in Turkey Uh, but thankfully they pushed it Mm. so we were still able to do it we did it between the lockdowns but even then we got out there and four days in I think we had another four days after that or another five days after that they bought in Turkey on the quarantine list so we were suddenly scrabbling to get to an airport and fly back before quarantine came in you got the job finished no not really we kind of got half the job but it was a road trip story so it's difficult and you know we were looking for ways to go back and try and finish it off but it's just really difficult because the other thing with with shooting travel is a lot of travel companies are you know suffering and suddenly their budgets for funding kind of travel stories in the media what have you of being kind of looked at and checked and yeah. You know, uh, purse strings being tightened what have you. So yeah, work work has been massively affected, really. Um and I kinda, you know, there's a mixed blessing in a way. Like I've been shooting for 15 years, so I I'm kind of used to ups and downs, and mm. I'm kind of used to going through and, and dealing with quiet periods. It's just that this has been an extended quiet period. Mm. And so you know, I've been looking for ways to make the most of it to kind of shore up other sides of the business, you know, doing loads of stuff on the back end kind of side of things on databases and just stuff that, you know, boring admin stuff that just makes everything run more efficiently yeah. um, and makes, you know, the, the, the business a smoother operation. So that's not being time wasted. Um, on top of that, I've been doing the podcast. Um, I did some YouTube videos, um, you know, some other bits and bobs that have kind of loads of neck scanning and stuff. Just wow. try to keep yeah. productive, basically. The yeah. hardest thing, I think, is not the thing with, with work, especially because I have a mix of kind of commercial and editorial, is that um, you'll get a job that comes along and it suddenly kind of forces you to take on this kind of assignment that you might not have considered before. And it's kind of a force, force stimulus, if you say what I mean like you get, you have, you get inspired very quickly because you have to.
2: Yeah.
1: And with the lockdown and everything, that kind of onus of finding inspiration has come back to me rather than someone being like, right, I want you to go here to, in a week's time and shoot this story. Yeah. And then I can, you know, when that happens, I love that. I react to it. I kind of get, you know, do my research, get into it, find a way that I want to shoot it and then go shoot it. Yep. Whereas when there's not that happening and also there's not the travel going on or, or whatever, then it becomes a bit more difficult. Do
2: you find yourself easily inspired when someone says to you, like, you're going there? Because I know that I can get... I can be quite ADHD with things like I'll find something that I'll find as a project or exciting and I will immerse myself in it completely and totally until I'm Mm. basically bored of it. Um, but I also find sometimes with jobs, uh, that I've got no interest in the job and I have to force myself to, to Mm. even appear interested in what I'm doing. I think, yeah, what you're doing most of the time, uh, it's probably just quite exciting, I would imagine. I mean, you're in some pretty spectacular places. And even when you're not, the characters that you're meeting and photographing are pretty, you know, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Enigmatic.
1: <laughs> mm. They can be. Yeah, it can really, it can really vary. And I think I've worked hard at trying to get the work that shows that I can do that in order to get more of the same if you see what I mean like Mm -hmm. it's that chicken and egg with photography isn't it you're not going to get sent on assignment to go somewhere unless you've got it in your book and then it's like well how do you get it in your book if it's catch-22 yeah um so I really enjoy those kind of stories which are a bit out there because it allows me to um as long as I've got some kind of level of support either from the writer or from the editorial team um, because there are clients that literally will just be like, right, here you go, you're on your own, off you go, come back with what you get. And that can sometimes be a good thing and sometimes it can be really hard. Um,
2: it's, quite it's quite rare these days, though, is it not? Yeah.
1: I mean, it's. I was working a lot for kind of airline mags and that industry's just bottomed out, obviously. Mm. Um, and depending on the art director I was working with or the editor that I was working with, I could kind of have a really loose brief. Yeah. This is vaguely what we want you to go shoot, go look at it, discover it. Because I'd worked with them for so long, they kind of trusted me to come back with something, and that was that was a good position to be in, you know. To I
2: be, did a, I did something for EasyJet. I did a day in Venice for EasyJet, and I was basically just left to my own devices, just like yeah. shoot, and then contact sheets, and then that was it, really. Like,
1: yeah, and sometimes that's a nice way to work, you know. It's it's kind of refreshing. But equally, I quite like it when you you have somebody who really um, you know sees similar to yourself and uh, picks you for the job because you're the right fit mm. um, and is is interested in kind of developing the idea with you because that yeah. collaboration it can be when it works it can work really well and you can come our way with something that's far stronger than you could have got on your own yeah you know having that level of support do you do your own editing i do yeah
2: yeah because that's something i spoke to somebody the other day and it's more in the fashion world like they don't really do much of their own editing these days it's a lot of retouchers and stuff that do it and i couldn't stand that Mm. not having that final control See, unless it, it was something that I wouldn't be very good. like if I was doing some product photography which I never do yeah. I'm ter- terrible at it I'd happily hand that over to somebody else because I would yeah. mess it up
1: see I I I tend not to do my own film editing when I'm making films I prefer much prefer to get an editor in because I feel like they're just going to do a much better job than I would mm. but it's also about trust, isn't it? You want to be able to sit down with that person and actually go through and understand they understand you and understand what you're trying to do and kind of not go too crazy. Mm. And it's the same with, with editing photos. I will work the retouches on commercial jobs because I realise that quite often there'll be lots of demands from the client and it'll be something I'd rather not be dealing with and there's going to be somebody who's spent their whole life retouching who's going to be in a better position to be doing it. Or
2: editorial, it editorial?
1: But most of my work, you know, is not got any retouching really to it.
2: Yeah, I'm you know what I mean?
1: It's like, it's graded and I prefer to do my own grading.
2: Yeah, exactly, yeah. exactly. So, so we'll go back to like, go back to the start. Like, where were you, were you born in London?
1: I wasn't. I was born down in Dorset, in Poole, And down then, on the south coast. Early interest um, in photography? Uh, f- no, kind of not. I say no, but there's lots of pictures of me as a kid running around with a camera with no film in it. i i used to that i used to love the idea of shooting pictures i don't know what it was whether or not it was like a tactile thing or whether i'd seen some film where there was like press photographers you know 1940s press photographers running around with those massive flash guns and kind of the four by five graphlexes whatever they are Um, yeah (laughs) yeah yeah i had like this kind of vision of you know I, i had an old ilford sportsman that was my granddad's it was basically I don't even know if it works but I treated it as a toy you know just run around pressing the shutter so but then I never really took pictures until, again myself really no, apart from point and shoot stuff until my teenage years my brother was big into his skateboarding and mm. where we grew up there was kind of a bit of a skateboard culture and a surf culture Not, I found the surf culture a bit ridiculous down there because there's no surfing pool it's a bit off Bournemouth Pier, but I mean it's pretty lame. So there was a lot of kind of like people wearing all the brands, but no one actually doing the sport, which yeah, I used yeah. to find really irritating. Um, and I was fully like hands up. I'm useless at surfing, yeah. <laughs> but um, but uh, but yeah. With skateboarding, that was kind of like a bit of an early access to it because I used to I remember watching a lot of the kind of you know the, the thrasher videos and the VH, like the VHS that he would bring home we borrowed from a mate from school and we'd yeah. watch these kind of like early skate videos there's a
2: huge huge photography culture in skateboarding like massive
1: yeah. and so there was a bit of that and then I think it mixed with a bit of I was working in a local library as my Saturday job and I used to kind of try and spend quite a bit of time in the photography book section. Not there was a photography book section, but like the art section had a few photography books in it. And, you know, occasionally you could push the trolley around the corner and spend a good 20 minutes without anyone noticing that you were just like <laughs> working filing the same section because actually you were spending 10 minutes looking at the books and then, quick, you know, then there was someone me to kind of like... You know, filter around, put a few on the shelf. I worked um, in
2: library. I worked in the library for a while. I got sacked because I was making, um, I was making treasure hunts for the students to do. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I was so bored.
1: Yeah, the library was quite a weird kind of place to. Well, I had quite a few Saturday jobs. I worked like in a boatyard as a shipwright assistant. I worked in a, as a KP in a restaurant. Had a paper round. Worked in a beach shop, selling buckets and spades, and then I worked in the library. And the library was actually the most dramatic of all of them. We had. We had somebody die on us, and I wow. was first responder. I had to try and give CPR. We had. How old were you? Uh, it's probably about 16, 17. Wow, man, that's rough. And then we had, um, we had, you know, people nicking stuff all the time, especially the DVDs. Sorry, books. People weren't really stealing books. You had, you had, it was the early days of kind of internet, you know, internet in libraries. So you'd always you do your hour session on, on, as the administrator in the internet section, constantly trying to kick off old men who were looking at dodgy websites you know, <laughs> in a public library. It was madness. Um, but, yeah, so I, I, anyway, I, um, I basically I, I started to see photography books there and at the same time I was really into art I was really into painting and drawing and basically at school any free period I had especially in sick form I'd be in the art department you know just painting yep. and I had a friend at school Duncan who started to get into photography and we actually had a dark room at school in the physics lab but we didn't have a photography module or any kind of classes it was just a physics teacher mm-hmm. Mr Tansey, who was a bit of a legend he was one of those teachers who It was just, I bought my first car off him for a start. (laughs) I think I paid him 50 quid for a 1972 VW Beetle, which ran. How Um, how old are you? uh, 36. Okay, you're a year older than me, right. Yeah. Yeah. So um, I had, yeah, so he he had this photography darkroom that he'd had, he'd specifically asked to be built when they built the new physics Mm -hmm. department or the new science department or whatever he had a physics lab and they had this dark room attached to it. There was no mo- module. So it was like a tiny bit of the curriculum would be like maybe one day you'd go in the dark room and yet they had the dark room. So the rest of the time it was just empty. Wow. So myself and Duncan kind of started to use it. And then slowly I kind of flipped from spending all of my time in the art department painting all my spare time to all my spare time in the dark room developing printing and, um, I absolutely loved it you know like it's just that thing of seeing yeah it's such a cliche but anyone who's ever developed or printed their own work knows what I'm talking about the first time yeah, you yeah. see that picture coming out in under the red light you know in in the liquid and it's kind it's, of the things marching. moving around it's emerging it's just it's alchemy you know like you're looking at it going yeah and especially when you know that you've 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 taken every part of that process you know you've yeah. you've loaded the film you've shot the camera you've you've pulled it out you've stuck it into the bag in the dark and you've put it on the reel you have developed the film and then you've printed it it's um there's a real sense of satisfaction from that yeah i mean that's the magic of of to me that's film photography
2: is photography like digital photography is, it's it's image making it's not i don't see mm. it as photography like in obviously i use digital like digital for work all the time like i'd never use film because i'm not allowed to um but the uh, for the type of work I do, but photography to me is that exact
1: process. Mm. See, but the thing is, I feel like I've lost touch with it. I had so I, I with the developing side of things, you know, film, I still shoot a lot of film, but I, I don't process any of my own stuff anymore, mm. and I kind of wish I did. Um, it's pretty, it's pretty difficult to be fair, like, it's something that I think that is in my long-term plan yeah mine too the the next place i move to i'm gonna kind of earmark a space to be doing um you know to to create a dark room yeah and i mean i would have one here if i had running water in my shed yeah i'd probably set up a dark room in there because um it would be perfect for it yeah but um but yeah, we, I mean, and even in the studio, actually, where I am now, uh, we, we have, we've talked about it because we've got a lot of the kit and there is like spaces that just don't get used that we could set up. We just never got around to it. I mean, I had one for a while in Brixton that I was using that was in a mate's basement and he was really lucky, lived in an old coaching house mm. and in the downstairs used to be a recording studio. So whoever had been in there built this mixing desk and it was a perfect height to put your enlarger on and stand nice. there and develop. So we and it was all soundproofed. Ventilation was a bit of an issue. Uh, you could you couldn't develop in there for too long, otherwise you'd get high. But um, yeah, we used to go down there and uh, and use that and that was that was great fun. But then he moved up to Edinburgh and with him went a lot of the kit. Yeah.
2: Um, I mean you don't need too much room. You just it's it's more like you're saying it's the ventilation, the running water and the ability to actually be able to black it out.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean I've got friends who um use their bathrooms here in London, you know, and just do that. For yeah, um, for
2: for processing that's all right. mm, But for printing it could be a bit Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean it's it's the thing is it's not ideal, is it's a headache to have to like get something out, set it up every time you want to use it. It's like um So from
2: school so from school did you then go did you study photography?
1: No, so I I studied history and war studies, which Ah. uh, basically that was my other kind of interest was history. And I didn't want to study photography because I felt like, a, I wasn't, sh- I was, I wasn't a hundred percent sure. Well, I didn't know any photographers. I didn't know anyone who'd ever worked as a photographer or made a living in it, which wasn't in my sphere of kind of mm-hmm. experience or in my family's sphere of experience. You know, my parents, you know, were both relatively sensible in terms of, you know, my mum worked for the council, my dad was a quantity surveyor. Like, it's, it wasn't like. But I came from a family of artists, so um, the idea of going to art school or anything like that wasn't really something I considered that seriously. Um, I thought, I'll go and do an academic degree in London, because that was the only place part, I think there's two courses that did the course that I wanted to do, which was a joint honours.
2: So when you did things like War Studies, were you aware of people like, you know, Don McCullough and stuff at that time? yeah.
1: Yeah I was and I think that's possibly you know but I think probably the reason I was interested in people like Don McConnell was because I had an interest in history yes so it was kind of vice it went both ways you know I was interested in in um, war studies because of the kind of uh, the visual history that I'd seen but I was Mm -hmm. also interested in those kind of images because of my interest in politics and you know um that kind of uh, social science that war studies was so i i found this course in london which is the only one i think the other one was in wolverhampton and i kind of figured my post degree prospects might be better in london than in wolverhampton not that i've got anything against wolverhampton um not that i've ever been i'm putting uh, a disclaimer I'm putting a disclaimer,
2: loads I'm putting a disclaimer in that you do you despise wolverhampton <laughs>
1: <laughs> um Yes. So there you have a course, I think, called, I'm going to get this wrong. I know that Bradford had a course called Peace Studies, and I think Wolverhampton had another War Studies course. But basically, there's not many of them in the UK. And there definitely weren't at the time. King's was considered like one of the top places to kind of do that crossover. And um, it's it was like a normal BA, three-year BA. It just happened that you did half of it. In the history department, half in the Wall Department. And because you were at London, because you were at King's in London, you could do courses at the other universities in London. I, mm. I did a module at UCL. Um, I think I might have done some stuff at Birkbeck. So it gave me loads of opportunities. And whilst I was studying, I started to work for the student newspaper. Um, They didn't really have photographers working for them. They just had people who did everything. And, you know, it was just early days of digital. So this is 2003. So suddenly the paper could be a lot, you know, we could turn around stuff quicker and we had more opportunities. And because it was a university in London, we had access to quite interesting people. Mm. There was musicians coming through and playing at the uni. There were writers and philosophers and whatever. Like it was a good opportunity to actually go and, shoot stuff in amongst all the other usual crap that student newspapers used to do like hunk and babe of the month Um. (laughs)
2: but you know early (laughs) early digital photography was that like there was that i mean i was well we would have been at the same age 17 18 at that time 2003 and like it the quality of digital wasn't really it wasn't good like obviously compared to like now so like a digital camera was like it, it was convenient but it wasn't great the imagery was Pretty terrible,
1: yeah. I mean, I had a horrible bridge camera, Fujifilm Bridge SSP something before I think I got my first, like, was it Canon 300D or whatever it was, the Rebel mm. as they called it in the States. Um, yeah, I mean, and it's weird because looking back, you know, I was shooting everything, I always had a camera with me, mm-hmm. and I'm not like that anymore, and I kind of miss it in a way. <laughs> and a- I was so i was so open to everything you know yeah and everything i saw is an opportunity to get pictures yeah every you know i get mocked relentlessly i'm
2: like for i i'm apparently i take like for a photographer i take so little pictures Mm. i see pictures all over the place and i but i just sort of clock them and i'm like okay that's cool that would make a really nice photo and then sometimes i'll be like i'm going to go back to that so then Mm. i'll pack up the pentax 67 or something and i'll go and shoot it but I'm not one of these obsessive documenters.
1: Mm. And I think it's, I think the thing with photography is that um, if you are able to maintain that thing of seeing the world through like a childlike kind of, Mm -hmm. uh, not a naivety, but like with childlike eyes, you know, everything is new and amazing in terms of possibilities. And I think it's really important to try, I don't know how though, but it is important to try and maintain that throughout your career. And the best photographers I've met and the most inspiring photographers I've met are the ones who are still excited about stuff, you know, still enthusiastic and haven't oh, got yeah. too cynical or jaded.
2: Um, I mean, yeah, they tend to, yeah, they're like, you know, they are, but they are like children, I think. When I watch any documentaries or I speak to any other photographers, it's that sort of thing. Yeah, there's a genuine excitement in, in capturing images, mm. uh, unless you're like Don McCullen, who I don't know where his excitement came from. Like <laughs> it was just being almost dead every single day. I think was his was his excitement.
1: Yeah, he definitely um, definitely decided to push things to the limit, didn't he? Have you ever met him? Uh, no, I haven't. Uh, no, have I? I think I might have. Done, I think I've been in the same room as him. I can't remember. It was a type of thing that when I graduated. I was doing, I did some work on a documentary to do with Cathy Le or mm. Cathy Leroy, as it's phonetically spelt, who is a French photojournalist who did amazing work in Vietnam. She won like the Robert Capa Award for her yeah. work in Lebanon. And then she kind of moved to L.A. and died in obscurity That's in the right, 90s. Yeah. And um, we, she, wait, is she the one? She's not the one that wore an eyepatch, is she? No, you're thinking of Mary Colvin. Sunday Times, yeah. who died recently in Syria. Right. Uh Kathy was um she's an amazing photographer. You look up her stuff in Vietnam, it's insane. And um she got captured by the North Vietnamese, you know, she did some crazy crazy she did like one of the first parachute jumps ever for a combat fellow journalist or like for a female combat photojournalist journalist, I think. And she was about five foot nothing. She looked like a ballerina, <laughs> she had like blonde pigtails and she was absolutely hard as nails, amazing photographer, you know. Just bolshe, just had what it took basically. Mm. Um, so we did a documentary about, well, we started to film a documentary about her, and I was brought on because I'd done my dissertation on um, uh, ethics and morality of uh, documentary photography during the Vietnam War. So I'd really ground down into a couple of photographers and read mm. all sorts of biographies, autobiographies, first-hand accounts, done conducted interviews you know, it was cross-referencing stories from particular battles during Vietnam, I'd become like quite knowledgeable on it. And, um, and then after I'd graduated, I'd I'd kind of, through weird circumstances, basically ended up going out and covering the Israel Hezbollah war with a flat jacket I got on eBay and effectively hitchhiking up to the border and not the way you should go and do something like that, but I was 21 and I was, Young and kind of green.
2: Was this your introduction into what you do now?
1: so well, sort of, but I don't really do that
2: now. You know, like I feel. Well, was it your introduction to becoming a photographer in that sense, like professionally?
1: In in a sense of doing. I mean, obviously, I'd been shooting stuff in London, but it was more kind of portraits and gigs mm. and weddings and whatever. And this was more kind of getting my teeth stuck into more journalism. Um and it was something I feel like I needed to do and I'm glad I did do it but it it also highlighted quite quickly that it wasn't something that I could do sustainably Mm -hmm. um and maybe it wasn't for me so and I don't think that realization was instant I think I came back and I was very anxious and very kind of pent up and probably a bit frazzled to be honest um because then it was like, well, what's next? What do I do now mm. And I moved you know I'd, I came back and I'd moved in with my my parents, and I quite quickly was like, i can't do this. I need to be back in London or so that I can travel and so that I can just figure stuff out for my own mm. self and I moved back up pretty quickly like within a matter of a month or so, and I had a friend who had um who was renting a flat, and the rent was super cheap. I used to pay it in cash over over the bar and the Irish pub around the corner. Um, And so that allowed me, and I stayed in that flat for, apart from moving upstairs, I stayed in that building for like 10 years and it, it, the rent was always quite cheap, (laughs) but it meant that I was in, you know, I was 10 minutes from central London Mm. and I could go away for a period of time and not worry too much about having to cover the rent because it was cheap, you know, Yes. So then I would go off and I I went off to Kosovo and I spent time out there covering the run up to their independence. I remember going out and spending a month in Cuba around the time of their um, 50th anniversary of the kind of Cuban state. Was this um, was this for work or was this just for you? Mainly for, it was mainly for me. Like I picked up a few jobs when I was out in uh, Kosovo, I picked up bizarrely like a travel assignment for the ft in albania and i picked up some um assignments for the sunday times in kosovo um but quite often all the while being aware of the fact you're
2: clearly building a pretty impressive portfolio i would imagine
1: sort of but also because i was learning like so much but i wasn't still wasn't surrounded by photographers Mm. i feel like my work in some ways it was probably great at kind of rounding me as a person, but I wouldn't necessarily look at the work now as particularly good work, mm-hmm. you know? So in what some ways... Of, what sort of kit were you carrying? Um, God knows, back then, probably like Canon 20Ds or something like that.
2: Mm.
1: Whatever, whatever it was. Um, <coughs> I wasn't really shooting film. You know, I... I went from shooting film at school to then solidly shooting digital for probably eight years before I started to rediscover film mm-hmm. and realised that I missed the ta- 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 what's the word, tactile nature I guess of film mm. um, and that there was something a bit soulless in digital but what digital had allowed me to do was it gave me the space to learn my craft to yeah. learn lighting to learn you know lots of things and make lots of mistakes basically mm-hmm. without it costing the earth <laughs> effectively well, yeah that's the yeah i mean, that's the main
2: downside really to film
1: <laughs> it's the cost yeah so and and the other thing was there wasn't a photography um society at my uni and maybe i should have started it but i feel like if there had been and if there had been an access to a dark room I probably would have picked it back up quite quickly. You yeah. know? But because I didn't and because it wasn't there, when I left uni, I didn't have access to any of that because I wasn't like I'd studied photography and I could have gone back to my old, you know, like the LCC or somewhere and used yeah. their labs or used their printers or, or really kind of spent a lot more time kind of developing my craft in that sense. So, um, so yeah, I, I kind of didn't go back into it until probably 2010 or 11 when I started buying up film cameras again
2: yeah and i mean with a magazine paying for your 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 film and development costs like it's not really an attainable thing to be shooting especially
1: that type of work Mm, very much so i mean even now i find it you know it's 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 amazing really like it's such a luxury to shoot film in terms of what it can cost to develop and stuff and i'm Mm. still not fully kind of you know, I've used lots of different labs, but I've not settled on like one lab that I fully, hundred percent trust, and you know, will go to all the time, um, or I've built not so much not trust, but built a relationship with. But I mean, I definitely also got burnt. You know, I remember having, I had a one stint or a few months where I'd been out all over the place. I'd I'd been in Turkey, I'd been in Guatemala, and I'd been in Rwanda, and so I had all this kind of backlog of film. And I kind of dropped it all at the lab and uh, they were developing it and one of their machines broke halfway through and no. basically the film sat in the chemicals. So you know, you're suddenly getting back all these necks from however many months worth of trips that are just no. screwed. And then I had another situation with a different lab that was uh even more annoying, which was basically they would hold on to the way they worked is they would hold on to your necks and then you would get them back like six months later once they'd got like a, a selection of them, like once they'd got like a whole body of them, once they get a certain amount, you could request that they'd post them back in bulk rather than posting back each yeah. So, And um, they decided to move to Canada, and I think I was away at the time. Basically, in the process, they claimed to have sent me an email saying, right, you know, you need to get your necks back. Where would you like them sent? Because I'd never responded. They ended up, spinning my necks no. and these were like i'd had i'd been in on assignment in tanzania for vanity fair photographing this tribe called the Hadza, and i'd shot a whole load of it on my wide lux and right. you know a it's quite a hard story to go out and shoot it's quite remote and whatever and b yeah. there's probably no one else who shot it on a wide lux no and those images are gone you know i have loads yeah, scans does, of
2: them. of anyone that doesn't know what a wide lux is do you want to just explain that camera
1: Uh, So it's a Japanese swing lens panoramic camera from the 80s and 90s. Uh, They had a couple of variations. I've got the F7. Um, It's all clockwork. Basically, you take a picture and the the lens swings from left to right. gives you a 140-degree panoramic image, which is unlike the type of panoramic image you'd get from, say, a Hasselblad X-PAN or from any other non-swing lens camera because the actual rotation of the lens gives it quite a unique characteristic. Uh, It's quite a tricky camera to work with in terms of it's very straightforward to shoot, but it's very tricky to get good images out of it Mm -hmm. because it's such a wide shot, very difficult to frame stuff. Well, Um, probably the most ironically, not ironic, but, Interestingly, one of the most famous or well-known kind of wide lux users is Jeff Bridges. I actor. swear
2: to God, I was just about to say to you, do you know who uses a wide lux? And it's it's Jeff Bridges. He's, he's yeah, pro- projects and projects on it.
1: I think it's all so he shoots camera. all his films on them. Like yeah. he'll shoot books from each film. But yeah, he's even got a section on his website all about it. And I actually photographed Jeff Bridges probably two thousand and eight nine and this was before I owned a wide lux and before I knew anything about them and so it was so frustrating because when I finally yeah. got one years later I was like oh man that would have been such a great chat to have had with him you know you know because when you're doing portrait shoots especially those kind of things off the back of film junkets for magazines yeah. you've got you've got 15 them. minutes of the talent yeah. in a hotel room and you are desperately looking for some connection and also trying to do small talk because it's like oh my god this guy is somebody I really respect or oh, this woman's yeah, yeah. somebody I really respect and I'd love to have a nice little anecdote out of it but invariably you just are like you don't remember anything you said because all you're thinking about is how to get the good picture and the technical yeah. side of that and everything And you come out of it and you're just frazzled um any particular favorites
2: you've got because I mean you've got a from the outsider, you've got the dream photography career you know, you you do some big, big portrait work. You get amazing travel work as well in there too. You work for Obviously. like, well, <laughs> great travel work in one part of London now, I would imagine. the yeah. uh, You've done some work for like one of my favourite magazines, Huck, love Huck magazine, mm. a winner. Um, but do you have any, any particular favourites on the portrait front? For anyone that's not seen Greg's work, I uh, recommend you check it out immediately. All 17 of you hmm. that we listen to this podcast?
1: Um, it's in terms of, it's hard to say. I mean, because it's a different thing for like the picture that I shot, portrait I shot recently that I was most pleased with. I did a um, portrait of John Le Carre, John nice. Le Carre, the um, uh, thriller writer. Um, I, his, and, I say
2: I know his son, I kind of know his son because my partner's very good friends with his son.
1: Uh, okay, yeah, his, his son's kind of involved in film production there uh, might be an Ellison,
2: his son. His son's the author. Right, okay. Nick, There's one who's... Nick Harquin.
1: They're really... I mean, he's a lovely guy. He's a very interesting guy. Um, Did you focus on your eyebrows? I, <laughs> he's got amazing eyebrows. <laughs> um, no, I, I kind of had this concept before because I've, you know, I've read a lot of his books. I'm a big fan of his work. Um, but he's a very complex character mm. and he has quite a complicated history, like backstory. Um, you know his dad was basically a con man and he there's this kind of mercurial side to him that Mm. is i find fascinating and i i was trying to work out how to kind of a lot of my work a lot of my portraits are quite dark Mm. i think um
2: yeah you've got that it's it's like that sort of you you use the sort of rembrandt style lighting i think quite a lot of the time it's that it's it's the it's it's not a glitzy fashion portrait put it that way it's
1: no i guess i'm drawn to those slightly melancholic moods as well yeah. and colours and i feel like there's a tension in everyone that i kind of pick up on and therefore i think i'm drawn to it a little bit when i'm taking pictures probably because it's something i can kind of relate to mm-hmm. um and so with him, I wanted to, sh- you know, it's difficult when you're shooting in somebody's house, but effectively we ended up taking our own studio and setting it up in his, in his front room. And I'd, I'd actually gone to the extent, I don't always do this. I mean, it's very different depending on the job, but I'd gone to the extent of actually running software to create mocked up versions of each shot so that I could then print out the lighting diagrams for each one and give them to the hmm. assistant because I knew I was going to have limited time and I wanted to get through several different shots. Mm-hmm. And um, and one of them was involving kind of um, mirrors laid down and him looking down into it. So you're actually seeing the reflection of him. Wow. And it came from a much more complicated idea that I had, but I couldn't pull off. Uh, and I tried and I'd pre-lit it and shot it in the studio and I just couldn't quite kind of get it how I wanted it to look. So I kind of, this was my plan B, but it ended up being quite a nice picture and partly because of the way we lit it and the colours but also the ton of tension and the photo and the idea behind it so I really enjoy so if you're talking about kind of memorable I mean for me it's different remembering a, a, a shoot because the photo I like the photo versus meeting somebody who just yeah. was awesome because sure. quite often if you're meeting someone who really blows you away, it becomes very difficult to actually stop talking and just take pictures. <laughs> 100%. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I sort of often think, oh man, I wish I would just like, could get to put the camera down and go for a pint with you afterwards. Yeah. And every now and again, you'll meet someone actually who is wonderful and gives you the time and doesn't come with all the kind of paraphernalia of, you know, agents and PR people and whatever. <laughs> Um, yeah. and publicists and normally those people are writers or authors or or you know not the kind of a-list Hollywood. actors yeah yeah but occasionally you do find people that are just really genuine and you know it's just really refreshing and
2: what about your travel work like where where for you is one that's always going to stand out for you that's
1: a good question um so many different places for so many different reasons. I mean, I loved Cuba. I thought it was really interesting and really kind of romantic. And I mean, it helps that I was reading a lot of Hemingway and stuff when I was there. <laughs> and a bit of Graham green. But um, I, it's a really difficult one. I, I, re- I was in Brazil last year for a job and really, really enjoyed myself in Rio. I thought that was a really interesting place a really interesting energy. It's like quite edgy, like mm. definitely a, there's some pretty dark sides to that place. Um, but you know, I find that interesting. So <laughs> that have, you ever been a,
2: have you ever been in particularly in a particularly dangerous situation somewhere where you've like you know you've you've perhaps maybe been romantically carried away with with the f- photographic side of things and forgot about the reality of the matter?
1: Um, I mean touch wood i've been relatively safe in terms of traveling i feel like having spent the last 15 years in london i mean london's changed a lot but um they're definitely you you definitely get slightly more street smart perhaps when you're kind of you're spending a lot of time as a student out and about late at night and whatever, There's a, you get a certain kind of sense to when you might be walking into something stupid. Yeah. And also it comes from paranoia perhaps. Um, so I feel like I'm generally quite risk adverse. I'm not going to put myself in a situation which could end badly. Cause I, I, which... find, I find
2: myself here. like I'm often drawn to the sort of less salubrious areas of, of cities and things. And, um hmm. I will. Uh, I've got a lot of personal projects sort of going on in the background, and I'll I'll often naively go up to people in certain areas, and I'll assume that uh, that um, that people will be happy to have their photograph taken because they'll be as mm. interested in photography as I am. But yeah. people, but a lot of times people don't. They see photography as something like, it's someone taking a picture to sell you a picture, like a school photo or something, as opposed to an art form. Yeah, so You try and explain that you want to take somebody's picture to, I don't know, whatever reason you've got behind it. You can, yeah. uh, more often than not, well, I, I've been in situations where people have, you know, accused me of being, like, a uh, sex offender. <laughs> like, yeah, but you're just like, no, 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 look, like, I'll, I'll send you the photograph. And they're like, I don't want to pay for a photograph. And you're like, no, I'm not trying to sell you a photograph. This is, like, this is me trying to say that I'm not, like, Uh, this is getting really awkward I'm gonna go
1: (laughs) yeah I think it's always a danger as a male photographer is actually it's very to certain places I just just won't get my camera out because I just feel like someone's gonna react badly to it Um, which is a shame
2: yeah if you go to certain places where often the the good photographs are um, there's a there's, 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 it can just, I think, get you in trouble more often than not. Yeah, I think,
1: I mean, if I'm working on a story, I will, I, you know, having a good fixer or a producer is worth its weight in gold. You know, mm-hmm. there's the number of times in, uh, you know, I've worked a lot in, in Central and West Africa and kind of being pulled up and checkpoints and being, you know, forced to pay bribes and mm-hmm. getting taken into police stations you know, basically because someone's trying to find a way to elicit money. Yeah. I've had that happen quite a few times on jobs. Um, and um, you know, unfortunately you're in quite often in those places where that's, you know, the, the situation is so desperate that that's what people feel like they're forced to do. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, you're going to have people in positions of power that abuse it. Um, and where do you sit on the sort of
2: the, the ethics and the exploitation side of photography in certain areas as well? Because I know that it can be almost voyeuristic at times. That I know that I'll go to certain places, again, for personal projects, because I know that I can justify it in the fact that I'll say like, there's a story to be told here. You know, this is mm-hmm. the other side of the coin, especially in places like Oxford. You know, there is council states, there's rough areas here that you could go and you could highlight to show the opposite side of the sort of pomp tradition of Oxford. Mm-hmm. But I know at the same time, it's like, I am doing this for me to take good photographs as well. Cause that's where I'm, mm. I'm interested in that side of things instead of, you know, uh, the, yeah, like I said, the less, the, the less, the sorry, the more salubrious sides of, of cities and towns. And um, I am aware of my, yeah, my, my morals at times, my moral compass can become slightly skewed as to why am I doing this?
1: Mm. And I think it's a debate that's only going to be had more and more, you know, with um, the aftermath of the Black Lives Matter movement. You know, there was Mm -hmm. a lot of kickback on people like Michael uh, Christopher Brown. You know, he Mm -hmm. got a lot of criticism. In my eyes, slightly unfairly, like a lot of people made jumped on it quite quick on a pile-on and made a lot of assumptions about the way he was working. But, you know, it is a sensitive thing, like who... There's a lot of discussion at the moment of who has the right to tell the stories. Should people be travelling? Should, you know, you be travelling as the outsider? Um, and I think there are a lot of valuable discussions to be had. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of it does come down to intention. And unfortunately, there's always going to be people within our practice who are perhaps less morally. Um, I don't know what the correct term is, but you know. Have different set of morals, effectively, to 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 yourself or to I, you know, and will not think twice about exploiting somebody for a picture. No. So, yeah. and that's it's always going to be difficult because it can kind of um, cast a shadow across the entire industry. Totally, and it becomes um, to that
2: point when does it when does the integrity, you know, sort of disintegrate to the point where it becomes what makes you any different than paparazzi?
1: and I think it's kind of you know, I think if you can try and involve your subjects and really engage with them and work with people, it's about building relationships and building trust. But the, the thing with kind of magazine and editorial assignments is quite often you don't have the time to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, and that becomes something you have to try and do very quickly. So even in there, like if I'm being sensible, so the story I was doing in Brazil was on kind of transgender performers for can- in carnival. Mm-hmm and i insisted with the magazine that we get a fixer i was Mm. like we can't do the story without a fixer we need to have somebody who understands the kind of local kind of cultural situations and nuances and it you know it made a big difference to be able to have someone who who already knew quite a lot of the subjects that we were going to photograph and um, without them, it would have been really tough, and I would have found it really awkward to try and it's shoot. A, you know,
2: it's also not. I mean, people are going to make assumptions about you. You know, with sort of with your accent. You know, you're a sort of mm-hmm. like good-looking middle-class white guy, and it will be like, you know, why are you act like you know, like they'll, the, uh, you, well, you know what I'm getting at. Basically, like yeah. it's, uh, it it can only surely be exploitative. if
1: if yeah and there's a thing of like is my voice relevant anymore? yeah um and i think as i said i think there's definitely some discussions to be had i think we're at the stage with any kind of with these discussions there's quite a lot of the kind of extreme opinions to start with and the pendulum swings back and forth before it begins to settle and we kind of go okay well this is a new place we're in this is a new way of thinking um And I, I mean, think we as, as, as practitioners, we have to be aware of that. and We have to be open to those conversations happening 100%. Um, and, you know, try and make space for other people that are trying to, you know, get in. I don't feel like I don't agree with the idea that just because you come from a certain place, you can't shoot a story or something. No, I, I agree. think that's ridiculous.
2: I think, you, I think you're just also, because you're a certain
1: color, you can't shoot a certain no. story or you're a certain gender. You can't shoot a certain story.
2: No, I, I think, completely agree i think it's all about it's learning isn't it yeah you're educating yourself at that point regardless totally
1: also there's going to be there are going to be assumptions that i might make when i'm going towards a story and in a way it depends who the viewer is intended to be because it could be that the viewer is going to make the same assumptions who are my audience Yeah. Um, Where are those? Everything is about context, and I think those decisions you can't just have kind of sweeping rules. I think every situation needs to be kind of um, delicately looked at for its own individual situation and what that requires.
2: And you've got, I think, with the subject matter. I remember reading a while ago about, or watching a documentary about um, Avedon and some of his some of his sort of later portrait work. And uh, the way he chose to portray some of his subjects and the controversy that caused from the aspect from the perspective of the sitter, because they were like, mm. You've made me look grotesque. Mm. And he's like, Well, that's how I saw you. That's how I saw you in that mm. moment. And is that then exploiting somebody? They've given you the opportunity to sit down, but then as an artist, are you then are allowed to go, Well, I can portray you how I want? You know, you've given me your your blessing to make,
1: yeah. make this art. It's interesting though, isn't it? Because it's the same in writing and journalism. You think about kind of people who give interviews and then the journalists kind of portrays them in a way that they didn't feel like they were coming across at all. I mean, that's Mm. happened for years. But um, And it is the same with photography to an extent because you are giving yourself up. You're then in somebody else's hands Mm. and... There are a lot of questions then about kind of ethics and morality and and, and exploitation and um representation and how you um present your know, presentation. I think it's you can look at
2: someone's work like you Neil know, Trish Martha.
1: No, I don't.
2: Trish Martha, check her out. So she shot a lot of sort of like council estates states in the I think I, was, I think it was around right about the 70s. It was all black and white work, all shot on an Olympus OM1 with a fifty mil. Mm. Uh and she shows it all in such a sort of jovial, community based, like light. Mm. Whereas what you could have done is 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 highlighted more on the the sort of degradation of it all and the the, the 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 you know the poorer aspects of the society, but she didn't. She it was a very uplifting sort of style of photography. But she's her stuff's mm. beautiful. Yeah. And I had an OM one with a fifty mil, I still got it. And uh, every single time I take pictures with it, I'm like, I have her in mind. And then I get them back and I go, yeah, I'm not as good as her.
1: <laughs> I think that the the, the the medium of photography is so interesting because it is flawed by its very nature in the sense that anybody who looks at a picture is going to be bringing all sorts of baggage to it and their yeah. interpretation on it. And the thing with it is that, you know, to choose to frame something, you're, actively choosing to exclude a lot of other stuff Mm -hmm. this is one reason why i'm quite interested in the wide lux as an idea because the wide lux is such a wide frame it's actually very difficult to point your lens so to speak at something and it's very unforgiving like you get a lot more sense of everything in the picture yeah i think and there's a there's a dutch photographer called uh Oh God, his name escapes me now. Um, I saw some of his work years ago in Belgium, in Charleroi. There's a really good photography museum in Charleroi, about the only good thing in Charleroi. Um, but he is—he uh, had—he was commissioned to photograph the city, and he shot it all on a wide lux. Oh. Um uh, It's going to really annoy me. And all I know is his first name is Jens. Jens. <laughs> <And so, laughs> Send it. I will find it and send it. You can put it in the show notes or something.
2: But this leads uh this because I we're gonna have to wrap this up quite soon, I'm afraid. Uh mm-hmm. I have a, a child to go and get. Um this leads to my, my last thing when I was just talking about Trish Martha and her Olympus OM1. Now you have a like at M6, don't you? Yes. Now the M six, I like many photographers, coveted the M six. I was like, I need this camera. I've mm. so many, you know. I've got all the Magnum photographers in my head. I've got the mystery of the, of the the Leica. It's the it's the Aston Martin of all film cameras.
0: Mm.
2: And I got it. And I, I couldn't afford a Leica lens. I got a Voigtlander lens. And I like. I was walking. I knew exactly where I was going to go and take my first photos. I got some Tri-X as well. I was like, this is. my, my gritty film. So I went to where I was going. I was like playing with the the um, the, the the lens, uh, the focal. Bobber. And, mm-hmm. uh, and then I took up my first photo and it just I was like oh <laughs> that was a letdown like it because of the Leica the way it feels it's so robust and it just it feels beautiful but then I took a photograph and I know that that's the selling point is that is it's how quiet it is mm. but I was so let down by it as a camera
1: it's fascinating really isn't it about how how important ergonomics are to cameras huge a, I, you know. I
2: I I sold it uh, about um bit like just like less than a month later I sold it and I bought a Pentax 67 in some lenses
1: um Yeah I mean you couldn't be more different in terms of lens noise <laughs>
2: <laughs> Yeah one's, one sounds like a thunderclap and the other one is uh, like a mouse fart but uh, <laughs> but I took it to I took it to Aperture in London to sell it you know those guys
1: yeah, I mean,
2: I've been in there once or twice, yeah. Went in there, and uh, I told them that I wanted to sell it, and they were like, why? And I said, I absolutely like it. And you would have thought I just drop kicked their gran in the face. Like, the disgust in their. What do you mean, you, like, you don't like it? And one of them, I think, called his brother to, like, come through and be like, listen to this guy. He's one... <laughs> <laughs> He doesn't like it. Sort of laughing <laughs> me out of the shop. I was like, oh. Uh... God, but even yeah. then, I still romanticise about that camera, and I wish I hadn't sold it, even though I didn't like it.
1: So I think, I mean, I'm always of the opinion that you should, I've bought lots of cameras and then not got on with them and then kept them anyway. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's obviously a luxury to be able to do that. And, um, you know, like the Mamiya 7. I mm-hmm. couldn't get on with the Mamiya 7 for a long time. And now, having used the rangefinder more and more, I'm more inclined to go back to the Mamiya 7. My rolly cord, absolutely love it. But still, find it kind of tricky to use. Mm. I mean, like in terms of for certain jobs, and that's the thing for me with the Leica. I love the M6. I just think it's such an ergonomically great camera. Oh, I mean, it's, and it's, I got the M10 because I was like yeah. feeling flush, and I've I, was going to say I the, can I hate it that camera. <laughs>
2: <laughs> the thing is, yeah, Leica digital cameras. I don't get on with them. I'm just like I don't see the point in them. The Leica no. Q, though, I understand the Leica Q. Tim Hayward sold all his camera gear to get a Leica Q, and he's a big fan of that. Mm. But I, I can understand it, but I'm just like, no. And then do you use mirrorless, like,
1: Fujis now? You- so I use a mix, yeah. So I have still have all my Canon kit, um, which I tend to use whenever I'm shooting with flash. Mm-hmm. And then I have a Fuji kit, which comprises of two X-T4s, mm. um, X-Pro2 and the X-100 V, And I use that for, I tend to use maybe the X-T4s and maybe the X-Pro2 on assignment. Yeah, because it's just crap. so much lighter. Like if yeah. I'm walking around, so I did a job earlier in the year, obviously before all this crap happened out in Kenya. And we were, it was a walking safari. So we were walking 20K a day at least. And I had a drone in my backpack and cameras, you know, and I'm not a massive guy. Like, and yeah. after how many years of being a photographer, I definitely have my odd back problem. Yeah, tell me um, So wearing huge amounts of cameras, I just don't like it. And the Fujis are great. I, like, I've, I have had a love-hate relationship with them. Um, there's definitely a lot they could do better. Um, They're beautiful looking things took me a long time to get used to the files and working with the files after working mm. with the Canon files for so long. And this is the thing where I fall down with the Leica files because I use Capture and Capture just cannot process Leica files well.
2: Yeah, I don't use Capture. I, I tried it and I just I didn't get on with it. I didn't find it very intuitive. So I, I switched.
1: Lightroom. I used to be all Lightroom
2: for
1: yeah. however many years, for at least 10 years. And now the last couple of years, I've started shooting more with with uh, capture purely because of the way it works with sessions and, and so for tethered. commercial work. Yeah, yeah, working tethered, but also the way it works for, for for actual file structure and stuff It just makes more sense. If I'm shooting and I'm editing in the studio, I can whack that session onto a hard drive, bring it home, carry on editing at my home office. Nice, you know. Yeah. Whereas on Lightroom, it was just a faff.
2: Yeah, I can understand yeah. that. I might need to go. So I mean, but I
1: do, you know, don't get me wrong, I loved Lightroom for many years and I think for certain types of things it's great. Just I don't think it is tool lacking, inside the it, cameras.
2: Yeah, it's lacking some tools, definitely. It's its retouching capabilities are pretty poor, I think. Um, but,
1: so that really though is what brings me back to the M six and why I think that you shouldn't hate it, is that it <laughs> is a,
2: hate is a strong word.
1: It's a good tool for I was a certain let down. type of yeah. I wasn't
2: angry, I was just disappointed.
1: The thing is, when you put anything up on a pedestal like that, yeah. you're gonna you're gonna run the risk. And we've all done it. We're all looking for that camera that's like the elixir, the kind of yeah. the holy grail of cameras where everything's perfect and the Pentax is that for me if it was just a little bit lighter. Like yeah. Seven. Yeah. I've not shot with one. I'd love to shoot with one. I always I love the images you get from yours and, and generally kind of the stuff I've seen you shoot with yours, I'm just like it, it suits your work like and yes. that's a thing the Leica probably wouldn't have suited it in the yeah, same way I agree it's, then maybe
2: it would have changed the way you work I just I like the I like take I like feeling like I've, I'm taking a photo um yeah. Craig I am gonna have to go my friend but no problem. thank you so much for that
1: sorry I just accidentally right. muted my mic then <laughs> for a horrible minute I thought I'd muted it for the whole session
2: no that would have made things pretty weird and i would have been really good at guessing what you were saying
1: i have realized though that i've been doing just using the built-in microphone the entire time rather than this usb mic so it's going to sound it sounds fine it's fine good. i'll use whatever i use and make it sound grand cool just let me know what you need and i'll um i'll ping it over
2: nice one, All right, man
1: take nice care to you too take care, Bye. Buddy. Bye.